today is uh, uh, an unusual day with the snow and uh, what it's doing across the state or in, uh, throughout the network. So um, uh, welcome. And um, I was uh, sharing with uh, our, our guest today that this month's Influence Magazine, I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to open it. A couple of articles of interest for me. One is Melissa Archer. She is a um, uh, professor and chair of the Divinity School down at Southeastern. And uh, she has uh, written a book uh, called I was, in the, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And it talks about um, worship in the apocalypse, worship in Revelation. And so this month's um, influence features uh, uh, some of her writing on worship in the apocalypse. So that's a good one. Uh, the other, uh, there are four articles on foster care uh, in uh, this month's edition of uh, Influence Magazine. And of course, that's our topic of consideration today. Uh, just in, in my prayer and devotional time last last summer um it, it just occurred to me you know you, how you have those moments of aha realization and uh, it just occurred to me that there were two areas that were central fundamental to uh, christian ministry uh and going back into judaism and that was ministry to widows and the fatherless and um uh, at uh, General Council and General Presbytery last August, uh, there was an emphasis on foster care ministry, and it just seemed to be, you know, in the current, yeah, in the flow um, for what the Lord was speaking into my heart as far as uh, focus and emphasis was concerned. Uh, shortly thereafter, John and I had a conversation and uh, about uh, foster care ministry. And uh, that conversation led to a broader conversation. And that's what we're going to have today. So welcome, John. Uh, would you please introduce yourself and tell us uh, about uh, your ministry as a U.S. missionary? Okay. Well, a little bit about me. Um, I, I sat where you sat, Pastor. And I remember that feeling of not wanting one more thing to do. Uh, in the past 48 years, uh, I've served as uh, uh, I had a kids ministry going on in government housing projects in Minneapolis. I assisted in the production of a TV show called Toddler's Friends in the 80s through WCFC in Chicago. I was a children's pastor in Kenosha, Wisconsin and South Suburban Chicago. Uh, my wife, who is across the desk from me, will be celebrating 47 years of marriage. Uh, I got six uh, grandkids from three married grandchildren, so or three married children, so very excited about uh, the opportunity to present to you today. And by the way, before I get going, I want you to see this, this empty uh, shelf behind me. Uh, I am right now in Clewiston, Florida. I know that makes you all very, very envious. Um, uh, we had a service in Miami yesterday where we're starting a new chapter of what I'm about to present to you. And, uh, and in between our gigs in uh, Miami and Lakeland is a little town called Clewiston who is looking for a youth pastor. So Pastor Don, if you know a youth pastor in Pennsylvania that is tired of shoveling snow, <laughs> you, you might want to give uh, Pastor Mark with, uh, a buzz. So for the next 30 minutes, I'm going to be presenting five different ways to connect people in your church to foster kids in your community. 
I'm also going to offer a resource for those of you who have experience with difficult children, uh, whether that is in your children's church, your youth group, or, or even in your homes. Um, I've got some help that will uh, be a great resource for you. So feel free to jot down any discussion points and questions. We're going to have time at the end. Um, and if those of you who are involved in foster care want to add to the story, please feel free. Uh, if you want to take note of my email address, it's johns at rfk.org. It's j-o-h-n-s at r-f-k as in royalfamilykids.org. Uh, if you want to email, if you want to send me a request for all the video links and the other links as far as presentation, please feel free. I'll send that to you. So as I move through this material, my goal is not to overwhelm you. Um, when I start talking about Royal Family Kids and Teen Reach programs, I want you to know that I do not, I do not expect the pastor to be running these programs. Uh, all the pastor does is open the gate so the people in your church can move from, from pew to purpose in your community. And maybe my own story will serve as an example. Uh, I was children's pastor at Stone Church in uh, Palos Heights, South Suburban Chicago. I had only been at the church a few months and because there was a lapse in children's pastors, everybody quit. So Marlene and I are scrambling to get volunteers to uh, do not just the children's ministry on weekends, but the four Royal Ranger campouts, the missionette sleepover, the district camp, and on and on, you guys know the story. And so while we're in the midst of that, a lady hears a man named Wayne Tesh on the radio. Wayne Tesh started a ministry called Royal Family Kids Camps, and he was asking churches to participate by starting a summer camp for foster kids. So our dear congregant, Carol Kobliska, writes the information down and very excitedly brings it to her children's pastor. Uh, her children's pastor did not match her excitement because I was completely overwhelmed with everything we had to do on our plate, and I couldn't imagine taking on one more project. Uh, so for... Um, so what I did to get her out of my office is I said, well, we have to present this to our, our lead pastor, Pastor Epperson, with the hope that he would shoot it down, <laughs> you know? And so we pitched this to Pastor Epperson. Of course, he's a big kingdom guy and he gets all excited about this. We can get outside the four walls of the church. And my whole focus was inside the four walls of the so church because I was just overwhelmed. And so what I found out about that process is Royal Family Kids uh, does not lean on the pastors to direct any of these programs. Uh, we train people in the congregation to do what needs to be done. And so when I got to come out to that camp, my volunteers had recruited the kids, they raised the money, they found the campground, they recruited all the volunteers. So as the children's pastor, I didn't have anything to do. I got to come out and actually spend time with the kids. And one little girl was afraid of me. And I don't recall ever in my ministry having a child hide from me when I was walking down the sidewalk, but that's what Brenda did. And her counselor wanted Brenda to know that there were safe men in the world. And so when we had the larger group meetings, chapel, um, campfire stories, uh, dinner time, Andrea would, some, would have uh, Brenda sit by me. And after a while, she started feeling that safety of being in numbers and a safe man. On Thursday, we have this camp out and I feel this little arm come around mine. She looks up and she calls me daddy. That just broke my heart because this girl was afraid of me on Monday, calling me daddy on Thursday. 
And then on Friday, she won't let go of me. She wants me to take her home and she wants to be my daughter. And that, that just broke this children's pastor's heart because I had never seen such brokenness in a child transform in five days. So that's how I came into this gig of starting to do Royal Family Kids Camps. Because after that week, everything I did at church was just so I could do this camp in the summertime and watch that redemption happen over and over and over again. So part one, Royal Family Kids Camps is a one-week summer camp hosted by a local church for boys and girls ages 6 through 12. The week of camp is a place where beds are safe, where everybody is nice, and meals are served on time. It is designed completely for foster children. The people that are recruited to come there are trying to create a family atmosphere. So we have a camp grandpa and grandma. Their job all week is to give safe hugs. We want foster kids to know that long-term relationship is a possibility. We have a camp aunt and uncle who perform the same uh, role, but they've got a lot more work to do. And then we have a professional therapist come to camp, a professional nurse, and a professional social worker. We provide 13 hours of training for the volunteers and then those, those 13 hours are enough to get you through the week. But when something surprisingly happens where you need a professional, you absolutely have to have a professional on staff. Now, what happens as a result of that week is different everywhere this happens. We know that a lot of people become foster parents. As a matter of fact, in 2019, our last full year of doing camps, we had uh, 123 new foster parents people that came to camp, met kids, and then started to become foster parents themselves. And that's a nationwide statistic. Uh, we had 239 campers return as volunteers. So these are kids that have served at a camp. They grew up, they turned 16, 17, 18, they come back to serve, 239 of them. We had 49 adoptions in one year. To give you a comparison, we have an adoption agency. It's a state. It's an agency that works in our in our region called uh, Evangelical Child Family Services. They do about thirty adoptions a year at a cost of about thirty thousand dollars in adoption. Uh, our adoptions are free. Uh, when a person comes to camp and they build a relationship with a child, um, and they decide to become foster parents and begin to fostering that child, the state will cover the adoption costs of any foster kid that is being adopted by by a person. So that's just a quick overview of uh, what happens at the week of camp and beyond the week of camp. Uh, the second program we offer is Royal Family Kids Group Mentoring. It's uh, a much less intense program where the foster parents will drop the kids off, their foster children off at church once a month on a Saturday morning for a group experience. And that is for ages six to 12, just like Royal Family Kids. We know that students who have a mentor are more likely to succeed in school. They're more likely to close any opportunity gaps as they become teenagers and enter the workforce. Uh, a mentor who is older can often open doors uh, to kids that are just not really open to them just because of their connections in the community. Most teens with a mentor get better grades than peers. Uh, a quarter of teens with a mentor are less likely to use alcohol. And 90% of kids that are mentored become mentors when they're adults. So this meeting that happens once a month 
at church is it kind of looks like this. It's like a mini camp where there's an icebreaker. Uh, there's some fast paced songs, uh, Bible story, puppet show, um, a, uh, an activity or a craft, and then connection corner. And connection corner is where they break down into smaller groups and the kids actually get to be heard. One of our foster kids that came to our camp, her positive memory was that people listened to her. That is huge for a foster kid. So when that happens once a month at church, that also opens up the foster parents to the opportunity of a caring church in their community uh, that they can participate in. So we're looking for 36 new mentor chapters this year. Our goal is to have 100 chapters. And so we need 36 new to get to that, get to that goal. Now, those two programs, Royal Family Kids Camps and Royal Family Kids Group Mentoring, are under the umbrella of For the Children. That's the name of our organization. We have a sister organization called Teen Reach Adventure Camp, and that is for graduates of Royal Family, but it can also stand alone. It's for foster teens age 12 through 15. But instead of doing a whole week at camp, it's like a weekend retreat. So it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, a little easier to get volunteers for. And the goal of Teen Reach Adventure Camp is to connect two foster teens to one camp counselor. They spread the activities out throughout the campground so there's time for them to walk and talk. Uh, teens are much more verbal than kids that are ages six through 12, and they need time to talk through their stuff. They do low ropes and high ropes um, confidence courses. And the, uh, the goal of the weekend is to help the children understand their value in Christ, understand that they are not identified through their abuse, neglect, or abandonment, but they are identified as a child of God. And then it also empowers the local church uh, to serve the teens in their neighborhood that surround them. Uh, the fourth thing I want to introduce to you is track life. Uh, track life is the mentoring component for teen reach adventure camp and the way that works is uh, foster teens who have been to the weekend retreat can stay connected to their adults all the way through to emancipation so the teen, the teen track life is for 15 to 18 now here's the cool part of churches that adopt these four programs when a child comes into relationship with people in your church at the age of six years old you can be the one organization in their life that says, I will never leave you and mean it. Because if a child has a, a steady relationship throughout their foster years where they're going from home to home, in and out of their homes of origin, if they have one consistent thing in their life, um, that can change the, the outcome in their life. And uh, let me tell you a story of, uh, of, of how this all came together in one child. Uh, this little girl, Amy, she came to Royal Family Kids Camp in Novi, Michigan when she was eight years old. Her camp counselor felt that God was calling her to be her adopted parent. And so after camp, they went to the camp director and asked if she was available for adoption. She was not. Even though parental rights had been terminated, she was placed with her uncle and the state gives priority to relative placement. So uh, so the next few years of her being in royal family, that passion never left them. But then an opportunity came for the husband and family to move to Arlington Heights, Illinois. And so this little girl, Amy, she was going to Teen Reach Adventure Camp. And her uncle, 
uh, as a punishment, told her she couldn't go to Teen Reach. She was, uh, she was 15 at the time. And so she was part of the church in Novi, Brightmoor Tabernacle. And she came to church on Sunday and said that she, her uncle was not going to let her go to Teen Reach. And so the people began a prayer chain where they prayed for her day and night, and the uncle relented. Uh, mm -hmm. And so she came to camp, and she had that, that God moment on the confidence course where she realized that she was born for purpose. After camp, the uncle gave her up. He no longer wanted to manage her life. Uh, I was called by the camp director because I was in Illinois, and that's where the parents were that wanted to adopt her. We got DCFS in Illinois connected to social services in Michigan. And four years ago, Amy became part of a permanent family just a week before Christmas here in Illinois. This is long-term. Uh, this is not anything that happens very quickly. In fact, our cycle for even beginning a new chapter of Royal Family is two to five years. Once people get the idea and start to see the need in the community, and begin to build their team, that takes time. Even if you decided to do a camp today, uh, by the time you got done with training this summer, you would not be able to ready, you would not be able to start your camp until 2023. If you wanna start group mentoring, we have training in March and that starts in September. And it works either way. You can start with group mentoring, build the relationships, take them to camp in the summer, or you can start with a summer camp and do mentoring through the school year. Or you can do, or they can stand alone. You can just do Royal Family Kids Camps, or you can just do group mentoring. Uh, it all works depending on what your situation is. Now, let me move on to those difficult kids in your church. Um, before I do that, I want to introduce a ministry called Trust-Based Relational Intervention. It's called TBRI. Uh, it was developed by a lady by the name of Karen Purvis uh, from Texas Christian University. We at, uh, at Royal Family for the Children uh, we guide children through this process of learning how to trust during the week at camp in particular. If you have a child in your church or in your youth group who, um, who runs out when the music starts, uh, pulls the fire alarm, or fidgets constantly while being disruptive, it might be a result of poor parenting, but it could really be more related to uh, experience trauma. Childhood trauma takes many forms uh, outside of abuse, neglect, and abandonment. Uh, the child may have an experience of traumatic birth, an extended hospital stay, a car accident, a home evasion, a house fire. Childhood trauma takes many, many forms. Children who have been adopted from birth can have echoes of trauma reverberating throughout their adult life. This TBRI, this trust-based relational intervention, is a process by which a pastor or a children's ministry volunteer or a foster parent can help the child self-regulate their emotions. This is really helpful information for foster and adopt parents to know what to do when a child begins to act out in their home. Um, at our camps, we had a training segment called behavioral modification. We have thrown that out because behavioral modification is a waste of time when a child is just trying to survive. So now we look behind the, the uh, behavior to see what's driving it. Uh, this past year at camp, we had another, another, a young child, 11 years old, his first time at camp, a boy by the name of Alec, 
who, when he got off the bus, said, I want to go home. And we tried to help him feel more uh, secure and safe and comfortable, all those things. But by four in the afternoon, he realized no one's listening to me. I'm walking home. Now, we're in South River, Chicago. The camp is in Indiana. And he starts walking down this limestone gravel driveway in bare feet the wrong direction. This boy really wanted to go home. And so the, the social worker, the nurse, our therapist all got involved. And they finally made a compromise with him. And they said, we'll call your foster mom tomorrow. If she says you can go home, we'll send you home. If she says you stay here, you stay here. Is that okay, Alec? And he agreed to that. We called his foster mom to find out that he had been through 11 placements. He had been with them for a year. They love him. And for the first time in his life, he had a dog. All Alec wanted to do is get back to that safety and away from this unfamiliar environment. But his foster mom said, but I think it'd be good for Alec to stay at camp. And so we, we told Alec uh, that your foster mom wants you to stay. So he figured out how to get him kicked out of camp. Uh, at night, at 10.30 at night, when all the kids were supposed to be sleeping, Alec starts shouting profanities at the top of his lungs. This kid wove a tapestry of profanity that me as a 68-year-old has never heard in my life, and he wouldn't stop. And so we're trying all these self-regulatory things, and nothing is working. And all his buddies in the, in the cabin are all laughing as loud as they could. And so we started going to them saying, you know, if you, if you didn't have an audience, maybe he'll calm down. They can't, I can't stop laughing. He's so funny. And it was funny. It wasn't so sad. So the therapist comes in and uh, we, we take him out of his bed and we take him to the nurse's tent where she started doing this TBRI uh, stuff with him and got on his level and just started listening to him and talking to him and gave him grapes. They sat and shared grapes and talked for an hour. <laughs> when he came back to cabin, that little boy realized that there was nothing he could do to get us to stop loving him. And he was a different kid from that day to the end of camp. And the cool part of that night when he came uh, back to bed is he asked Becky, the nurse, if she would tuck him in. And so she took her time, she tucked his sheets around, she pulled the cover up, tucked the cover around. And he goes, and I want you to have this. He reached into his pocket and he pulls out a picture of his dog and gave it to Becky. Uh, what, what, what a moment that was that we would not have been able to do at camp if we didn't have the tools to do that from TBRI. So um, you can't put these kids in timeout because that exacerbates their trauma. Uh, you can't punish them because you can't bring it on. I mean, these kids have been really hurt and we can't match that. So we have to find tools. And this is the best tool that we found that uh, I have a number of links in my notes that I can send to you. Uh, one of them is an hour and six minute long video that introduces uh, TBRI. And the last thing I wanna present before we have a time of conversation is Pennsylvania Kinship Care. If you've never heard of this, um, this is an opportunity for discipleship of foster parents and foster children in your community. Every county in Pennsylvania, 67 counties, uh, they have a foster care coordinator whose job it is to find families who have relationships with foster children. They are looking for community resources such as people and churches 
who know foster children who can surround the families and assist in recovery. It's called kinship care. And it's a process whereby families and friends of the children who are involved in this dependency system, uh, they are able to care for, uh, for the children that they have relationship with. Now, finding people can be pretty difficult, but they do know how, um, how, how wide the gap is between a child that's placed with a stranger and a child that's placed with someone they know. Fewer run away from home. There's better behavior in the home of familiarity. They're less likely to bounce between homes because if it's someone they know, they are less likely to give up on them. And the child knows it's better that I know someone is caring for me because they know me rather than someone they don't know. If a child can stay in the same neighborhood, the same church, the same schools, it minimizes the trauma, it minimizes the damage. They are damaged when they come into the system and we don't want to damage them further as they, as they work through the system. And family and friends, kin, they know more about the child than a stranger would know regarding uh, their birth home, regarding their situation. And so let me tell you how it works practically. If you have a foster child in your church or you know a foster child in an unstable environment who is connected with someone in your church, such as a classmate to a child, uh, a foster parent who is friends with a churchgoer, you can contact your county's foster care coordinator and you have to be persistent. Your call to that coordinator is a blessing to the family finding process. They call it a hallelujah moment for a caseworker, especially teens. And again, we have to be persistent, kind and uncritical because the caseworker may be juggling several emergencies at the same time. Locating the people who know the child and can surround the child is a really difficult process from a state perspective, as you can imagine. Identifying someone who knows the child or the family and is able to open their home during a crisis lessens that trauma to a child, but it's a difficult task. The trauma reduction in kids that will remember throughout their lives, the trauma of going to a stranger's home is reduced when they go in the home of their pastor, their children's work volunteer, uh, a, a friend of their, of their classmates' parents. To help you know how this trauma is embedded, uh, my mother passed away at 94 years of age. Uh, my mother had spent, uh, she'd been through seven different foster homes from her birth because she wouldn't stop crying. And when my grandma took her in, that was the beginning of our family. At 94 years of age, my mom still talked with abandonment about her abandonment with tears in her eyes. That trauma never goes away. So those who are added to the child's case have to be prepared to receive a call any time of the day or night. It could be at three o'clock in the morning, the child is brought to your house, usually by a police officer, and the child moves in with his or her garbage bag of stuff. The paperwork can be taken care of later. The child is placed with someone they know. They might just be there for the night. They might be there for a few days, or they might be there for an extended time through which you will have to be licensed by the state. So once you are added to the case at this beginning process, you can take the initiative. For example, 
a foster teen comes to your youth group and you see a bruise or you see that they are um, uncharacteristically detached, they're sitting by themselves, you are free to call the foster care coordinator and say, I've known Jimmy for years. He comes to church with the Miller family, and I think he may be in trouble. And once you make that call, your part is done. They cannot give you any information regarding the case. So to help you understand what a, a blessing this is, consider this. When a child comes into emergency care, here's the situation. The child sits in a chair while the caseworker makes one call after another after another. Will you take him? No. Will you take her? No. Will you take her? No. And every time that phone is dialed, that child gets their expectations up. And every time they hear no, it's another rejection. So this kinship care was developed to reduce that trauma in a child's life. Now, once they're in your home, those of you who are foster parents know they are going to start pushing boundaries. They want to know if you really love them or not. But at least there is some financial support. Um, if uh, anything from shoes for children to prom dresses to teens, the, the finances are to help them know that they are loved. And that is the church. We, the church, understand that giving life to another so another might live is something that we get. We understand sacrifices. Of course, it's not without a problem. Kids are damaged. Any 15-year-old can be difficult. We had a 13-year-old boy in Inglewood, Chicago neighborhood. It is the murder capital of Chicago. It is the highest crime neighborhood of all 120 neighborhoods in the city. He was a good kid. His mom passed away. He went to live with his grandma, and his grandmother began to be demented. We, I called everybody I knew to take this good kid in, but because he was in a difficult neighborhood and he was a young, violent, a young man, in a violent neighborhood in Chicago, it was really hard to place them. There's kids like that all through this system, that they're good kids and they need someone to take them in. Whatever they're good kids or difficult kids, all these children need your help. Yeah, the birth parent might show up at your house, which means police, court appearances. This is not easy. This is Jesus kind of work. This is a work where you give the absolute most and you expect the absolute least. And it will be the hardest, best thing you've ever done. Mm. So, Pastor Don, that's the end of my presentation. You want to take well, it from John, here? That's a, it's a lot of great information, and uh, uh, it's going to take a little bit to digest it. As, as I'm listening uh, to you share with us, it reminds me that um, we might need to hear this a couple of times in order to wrap our our brains around it, but let me open it up to uh, to uh, anyone that's joining us uh, this afternoon. Do you have any questions uh, that you'd like to direct to John? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead, Lorna. What happens to children once they age out of the foster care system? Um, and, uh, <clears throat> if they're connected to a family, their, op their chance for success is pretty high. If they didn't graduate um, high school, they are 40% more likely to um, 
become convicted of a violent crime within four years of their emancipation. In 2019, 9,589 children, well, adults, they were 18, were released with nowhere to go. 9,589 children released to couch surfing, homelessness, nowhere to go. That's the other component to a church being connected with foster kids. And I, I can tell you a story that happened in Pennsylvania. I didn't have this child's permission to tell his story, so I'll, I'll disguise the locations. But this boy was being emancipated from his home with absolutely nowhere to go. He called a previous foster parent who was a, a camp director for a Royal Family Kids Camp in Pennsylvania, and they invited him to come and live with them. Uh, they taught him how to work, they taught him how to manage his money, and he came and volunteered at their camp that summer, not knowing that he met his fiance at that camp. Uh, the following year, he proposed. The next year, he would be married. But before he did that, he went to the courthouse and had his name legally changed to theirs because he wanted his children to have a family to belong to. Mm. And that's just, that's just one relationship out of those 9,500 kids that were released with no one to go to. So the prospect is not bleak unless they have a connection. I mean, the prospect is bleak unless they have a connection. Good question, thank you. Yeah, Jess Jones. Yeah, I have a question about the uh, kinship care. We don't have any foster kids currently connected to our congregation, but we do a lot of community outreach. And this past year, we've had numerous cases where uh, the state has been involved and children have been almost removed or they're just at that point where it would not surprise me if in the future they are removed. And we do have connections with those families. And I have uh, couples in the church who have told me if they need a place to stay, they can come stay at my house. What is a good like first step to take? Would it be good for them to get like the training through the state and certified or like how can we be prepared to be most helpful in those situations? Wow, great question. Thank you, Jess. Um, there's two ways specifically. If you're committed to being a foster parent, uh, yes, uh, contact the state, go through the training, get licensed. And, uh, and whatever child they send you, love that child no matter what. Show them the Jesus kind of love that they are looking for. Um, if you're not sure you want to commit wholeheartedly to being a full-time foster parent, you can do respite care um, or you can connect with Safe Families. Um, Safe Families is an international ministry to keep kids out of foster care. It is faith-based. It is church-based. Uh, safe families will train people in your church how to, uh, what to do when a foster kid comes into your home. And then that information is given to local police departments. So when a child is removed from a home, but it's not criminal neglect, abuse, or abandonment, they need somewhere for that child to go. That child can go into the home of a safe family. Because safe families does not receive any remuneration from the, uh, from the government, they are free to, um, to bring that child to church. They're free to, um, they're not bound by any state requirements uh, for separation issues. Um, so if, if they wanna get involved with foster care at some level, I would say respite care, safe families. Uh, if they wanna commit wholeheartedly, then it's full on foster parenting. The other thing you can do is find out if any of your classmates are connected to any of these kids. 
because if the relationship is one off where a foster child goes to school with a child and that uh, parent, the parent of his friend is, uh, is someone that goes to your church, they can make that connection. Um, but the state has to know that those connections exist and that can be a little difficult to manage. And that's why I say connect with that one foster care coordinator in your county. Nice. Um, Mark and Christy English, uh, you have been um, involved in foster care. Can you just share with us a little bit of uh, your experience? Yeah, I am. You know, one of the things that uh, I love the presentation, I, I, these are uh, these are things where we don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, the wheel's already built. All we have to do is just, I think one of the things as a pastor, what I find out is the one thing I have to do as a pastor is create awareness. Yeah. If people don't know, they can't get involved. Sure. And so we spend a lot of time talking about foster care. We offer training for foster care. Um, you know, Christy and I both, uh, we have two adopted kids that we caught right before they went into foster care. So one of the things that we do actually, uh, we are working towards preventing kids from even going in foster care. If we can rescue them before the state gets a hold of them and then they get into a system. You know, we just adopted our grand, our first granddaughter out of Kensington. And uh, it was a drug baby. And there was no, this baby was about to go in the system forever lost, wouldn't have the care it needed. Um, and, and what I mean, the care is exactly what this presentation was about. You know, we're very fortunate that our daughter, um, she's about finished with her master's in psychology. She'll go into clinical psychology. So they're already located back in Florida. And our little granddaughter has a future, but they have the tools. And this is what's so good about rural kids and, and the mentorship and things. They're providing the tools. So for us as a church, we feel like as a pastor, we have to create that awareness. Now, many of you may know this, that we pastored in Florida 24 years, the same church. And then we moved up here three years ago, pandemic hits. We're on our way to doing things and it shuts down everything. So it's almost like we're starting from scratch, but in Florida, we created partnerships. I, it's it, exactly what this was saying. The state is desperately searching for churches to get involved. You know, it's real easy to look at the state and say, you're not doing your job when really it's the church that wasn't doing the job. <laughs> I mean, they, they want the church to come alongside. It's a safe place for them. Yeah. And immediately your, your church, you have multiple, multiple families. One of the things we just did, because we wanted to see what we had, what do we have in our house right now? So Chris, you want to tell them about the so survey? So we just did a simple survey monkey um, survey that went out to all of our um, a church membership. Mark promoted it from the pulpit and just had simple questions. And it really, um, we wanted to know who is, who's laboring among us? You know, who do we have on our team and who have experienced in foster care, who, who wanted to to you know, go down that road for training, who just want to help for respite. You know, what do you have to give? What is in your hand? So mm. we got very specific and maybe listed out ten different things. Yeah. Like, uh, we, could you give a haircut? Could you give, you know, a weekend? Could you give food, transportation help? Like very specific things. Um, we got back probably 
you know, I don't know, 150, 160 responses um, in a church our size, I would have thought it would have been, I mean, you know, out of 1500 people, I thought it would have thought it would have been a lot more just to just to respond to the survey. However, it was much more than what we had. Mm-hmm. We had a, a, a list of like 30 right. individuals only. And so it's a starting place. It's yeah. a starting place for interest. Um, we told our families that we were going to use that information and then develop more this year. So I definitely think awareness and getting to know who, you know, identified within our within our church. We found out we had social workers in our church we mm-hmm. weren't even aware of. And I, and I think that's the thing. You have to know. Who are those people that can be critical stakeholders in this? Yeah. You have to identify those stakeholders because those will be the people, like like you said, that's going to run with this vision. I don't, listen, I got tons of things on my plate. What I need is I need stakeholders that can take this and run with it. And so our goal, first of all, was create awareness and then identify what we have in our house. Mm-hmm. And that was a start for us. And um so we're right in the, you know, the beginning process. Obviously, our church in Florida was a lot further down the road. So we're creating new relationships. We're finding out what we have. But, you know, I, I want to encourage you, Pastor, talk about it from the pulpit. Find out the statistics on your foster care in your area. And um, I'm telling you, people will jump on board. We're, we're finding out there is a real groundswell for this. Yeah. And uh, just like we found out in Florida. So, and it, what was neat as a pastor, one of the neatest things for me as a pastor was for families to be in, in, involved in the foster care system. And all of a sudden this child stays with them. Of course, the state pays for this adoption. And so it doesn't cost that. I don't think a lot of people know that when I shared that here in Pennsylvania, they were like, it doesn't cost if I adopt. I said, no, they will pay for this. You don't have to. Our private adoptions, believe me, they cost. But with the state, it doesn't. And one of the neatest things for me as a pastor was to go to the courthouse and stand with the judge and with those parents and see that day where they're adopted into a permanent family. And uh, for me as a pastor, you walk away and you go, okay, this is what I can get behind. I can spend my life doing this. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I listen, this is exactly. And another thing we created for awareness and I think I told you about this, Pastor Don was, we started, we start every year off 21 days of passion prayer. Pastors, this will be the easiest offering you ever take up in your life. And I'm always looking for an easy offering. <laughs> this is the easiest offering you will ever take up. After 21 days of fasting and prayer, last year, we started what we called an Isaiah 58 offering. And what we said is this is, this right here is money that you're saving by not eating. So at the end of this three weeks, we're going to take up an offering that will go strictly to foster care and the promotion of foster care. Mm-hmm. And we took up in that offering after three weeks over forty thousand dollars. Wow! And, and and listen, the people the people were ready to give it. They're excited about the offering this year. We're mm-hmm. already talking about it because we're in it, yeah. and and it's yeah. just creating it and putting it before them all the time. That's great. That's great. Well, this is not the end of the conversation. This is the beginning of our conversation. John, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do and and, uh, uh, increasing our awareness. Now, um, I just want you to know so that you can 
partner with me in prayer, uh, we're looking for someone in the network who will be a point person, who will help bridge this. You know, uh, we hear lots and lots of good presentations, but we forget them when the next good presentation comes along. Um, and that's that's just our humanness. That's not a fault finding thing. That's just that's just uh, uh, all of us are, are touched maybe with ADD. Um, but um, uh, we would like to have a point person who is passionate about this ministry and will help us move forward. You know, James made it so clear. James one twenty seven. Uh, this is pure religion and undefiled that we take care of the fatherless and the widows. And so this year on sectional council tour, John, uh, I've invited to uh, join us uh, on our sectional council tour. Um, Cindy McKinley is also going to join us. She's going to talk about uh, uh, widow and widower care, uh, our more than conquerors ministry. Um, so it, it, sometimes we just need to do basic things well. And uh, that's, that's part of what uh, the Lord has stirred in my heart moving forward in 2022, doing basic things well. And so, uh, Mark and, and Christy, thank you for sharing your story, uh, very inspiring in your leadership. And uh, let's just pray as we close that God will uh, give us favor, and, but it will also give us the tools that we need, structure that we need. Uh, John, so many great tools through uh, uh, for the children and uh, the, the kids' kingdom. Uh, did I get that right? For the children and royal family kids. Royal family, um, which has a superlative um, uh, reputation. So, John, would you, would you pray over us yes. and uh, just lead us in that direction? Okay. Would you join me, Marlene? Okay, Father God, thank you. Thank you for people who have your heart, Father, uh, for, the, for the disenfranchised, uh, mm -hmm. for the people who are on the outside. And Father, this has been your passion since you called Abraham to be the first of your, uh, of your people. Mm -hmm. And it was part of the Jewish community to care for the orphan, to bring in the widow who had absolutely nothing. They had nothing to, um, to be able to uh, undergird their life to succeed. And Father, you have passed this passion down from generation to generation, where uh, even the, the scripture verse that Pastor Don uh, mentioned, that this, this is pure and undefiled religion, because uh, the orphans have nothing, Father. They have no future. All they have is a difficult past. And so, Father, if we can get engaged with these children, and what we basically are doing, fathers, we're, we're, we're your ears, we're your hands, we're your feet. And these children recognize that. They know that something different is happening when they meet a person who, is, who has a heart after God. They just know it. And so, Father, give us the um, impetus we need to take it from here. Yes. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give each of us the strength that when things get difficult to press on, Mm -hmm. And when things get expensive, let's raise the money. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> when we are just uh, at a loss of what to do, Father, let's lean on the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that will lead us and guide us and direct us in the way that we should go. And we thank you for it in yeah. Jesus' name. In amen. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, John. We'll look forward to seeing you again. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us on today's Zoom.